So Money Episode 511, the best of 2016, starting a business. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. You're listening to So Money. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Welcome to the show and welcome to our second installment of our So Money 2016 highlights. Can you tell I've been talking a lot this year? I'm like losing my voice and I've just started this episode. Let's cross our fingers. I make it to the end. Now, as I mentioned on Monday, we're ending 2016 on a high note by sharing some of the best of So Money this year. Conversations that taught us how to earn more, start businesses, invest wisely, be successful. On Monday, we covered all things negotiation. Today's topic shifts to entrepreneurship, advice for aspiring business owners or brands. I know a lot of you are eager to launch or grow your own company, uh, to be self-employed, call your own shots. I mean, that's the dream, right? For a lot of us. And many of my guests who've accomplished this admit that it's Really, it comes down to the hustle, accepting failure, giving yourself some financial runway to take those risks, and always being open and ready to pivot and change course. To kick us off, we're going to go back to my interview with award-winning chef and TV host, Andrew Zimmer, episode 450. Andrew is the creator, executive producer, and host of the Bizarre Foods franchise on the Travel Channel. Maybe you've caught it. It's that show where he eats what few of us would ever, ever put in our mouths, but he does it and makes a lot of money doing so. (laughs) He's also one of the most well-known and knowledgeable personalities in the food world. He has uh, a very candid personality, and he got very very candid on our show, talking about his addiction to accomplishment after his addiction to drugs. Now he has an addiction to accomplishment and how we can, for those of us who want to ultimately maybe be our own boss, overcome feeling vulnerable in our tracks. How have maybe his own vulnerabilities and his own addiction to accomplishment impacted his climb in the culinary world, the world of TV, and as the founder of his own media company? Here's Andrew Zimmern. I mean, I'm a I'm an entrepreneuraholic. I mean, I just love, well, of I love you ideas and, and you were just and saying, I love making ideas actionable. Yeah. And I think what you're doing, you're calling these companies, you know, like these brands, how forward thinking they are to partner with you. But honestly, to hear this evolution of your career, I'm, I can't help but think Andrew Zimmern is first and foremost, an entrepreneur. And I hope that it is going to influence other people that, you know, happen to get a TV show or have the privilege of having a TV platform to think like you are, because that is ultimately selfishly, I think, security for you in some ways to have a bigger handle on your own destiny. Because um, I think when you work in a big medium like television, where there are a lot of decision makers, I I felt very vulnerable in that role. It's uh, you're one person, even though you might be carrying a show and you are what's bringing in the ratings. It it's It's important to always think about protecting yourself in that process. Well, you know, it's, that is, um, I, I feel the same thing, but I look at it. uh, I turn it around a little bit when I'm talking about it with people. Um, everybody is measured in life a different way. And as a business person, a lot of that goes back to the nature of the, uh, 
work reward system that is baked into our contractual lives. Now, I happen to teach entrepreneurship at Babson College um, in one of my other 75 jobs. <laughs> um, I'm the entrepreneur in residence uh, and have been for, oh, five years now at the Lewis Institute and in particular at Project Soul, which is a group within the Lewis Institute that focuses on uh, startup food companies. And um, I talk with my students a lot about this, that as you grow and as you become more successful, regardless of what happens, you end up having more deals and contracts with more people. Even if you're a plumber, you know, you, you end up with more clients. If you're successful, you know, when you start out, you have two or three clients and the next thing you know, you have a hundred, right? Um, all of those contracts have work reward uh, propositions baked into them. The more complex the businesses are, the more complex those work reward systems are. And you end up sometimes, sometimes a creative project. And you can see where I'm going with this because we're going to start talking about TV. Yeah. Where everybody is rewarded a different way, has different risk, and is measured a different way. And so, the, the, you know, television, when you, when you say that when you were involved in that, you felt vulnerable, I think the root cause of that is um, the push-me-pull-you between different entities that all have different work relationships and responsibilities to a given project, all of whom are measured a different way. I'll give you an example. Um, I make bizarre foods with another production company, not my own. And we deliver that to Travel Channel. I do not have a business relationship or a contract with that other production company. The production company is responsible for delivering a show on time, on budget, et cetera. As the talent, I'm responsible for doing my thing. So everyone is measured a different way. The more tenuous those projects and relationships become, the more hands that are in the pot, the, the people have a lot of overlapping goals. In other words, everyone on the Bizarre Foods team, network, production company, talent, everybody wants the show to be good and successful and for viewers to love it. Because if that happens, that's our biggest overlapping desire. Then we're, then we're all happy and successful. But everyone's responsible for doing work and getting measured a different way. And that's why TV gets kind of so complex because you have so many different groups making so many different things together so many different ways. Um, I, I think it gets even more complex in the world away from TV, uh, in the digital world. Um, right now, today, 2016, it's extremely simple. However, I think it's only going to get more complex as more and more viewers come in and more and more advertising dollars come in. I'm, you know, famously when Alcoholics Anonymous was founded, um, the, the, the first couple of the people who created it, Bill Wilson and his partner, Dr. Bob, uh, you know, had a famous dinner with, with, you know, Mr. Rockefeller and they were seeking advice from him and they were actually asking him for, uh, I, I believe, a loan to help get the big book published and stuff. And Rockefeller's comment to them, which I, I is, is been one of the great lessons in my life. He said, he said, guys, money's going to ruin this thing. You're on to something really, really special. Money's going to ruin it. 
And the AA founders decided at that moment that they were, they were going to essentially self-publish this book, that they were not going to charge people because there were members in the early days that said, you know, we're going to, uh, we're going to charge people to go to these meetings. And, you know, they ended up doing it all for free. They ended up doing it all by donation. They ended up doing it where all the groups were autonomous. I mean, they couldn't have made it more open source. They weren't using the words back then, but they made it purely open source. And it has continued to flourish and grow now for, you know, 80 years. The The world of digital television, I see the same way. It It started out for free and for fun, right? You and I make a funny video, we post it on YouTube, it gets thousands of hits. And then someone else does it and they get tens of thousands. And then someone says to themselves, holy moly, that glossy uh, uh, city magazine, uh, you know, every city has one, right? Uh, that glossy page city magazine charges $5,000 a page, but their circulation is 80,000 people or 100,000 or 200,000 people. My videos are being watched 5 million times in one week or a million times in one month. Doesn't that have value? Don't those eyeballs have value? And you start to get advertising and you start to get a vastly uh, complex internecine web of, yes, overlapping desire, but yes, conflict on the digital side uh, because there are fewer rules and there's more players. And, you know, I think it's going to be fascinating over the next two or three years uh, for entrepreneurs, for media companies, for, for artists, talent, uh, and other people to watch how this digital uh, entertainment world unfolds because there's a very conventional model. For example, TV network owns uh, a website and puts their product on it for pay or for not, right? Now, what about when you're launching a company and you feel you're on the verge of failure? My next excerpt is from a conversation with fashion designer Rebecca Minkoff, episode 333. Today, of course, her brand is a global fashion powerhouse. But at one point, she did not think her company would survive. How did she overcome that? Take us back to that point. I think so many entrepreneurs experience that crossroads and some just have to go back to their normal routine and others thrive. What was that crossroads like for you? And your brother was ultimately a big part of taking you to the next level. Correct. So at that crossroads where, um, you know, I had a nice, a nice general starting point of a clothing business. I was doing about $250,000 a year on my own. Um, unfortunately or fortunately, it costs more to do that type of business than actual the orders are worth. Um, and for me to be able to manage that on my own and not having a very strong sense of business and finance and costing, um, it was very hard for me to juggle the cash flow, live and make the collection each season. And when the bag, the one style of bag, the morning after bag, you could see that there was a heat around it. You could see that there was this cultural movement happening with uh, going away from these it bags that would look dated after a couple wearings and being thousands of dollars. And this was like a very affordable price point. So you could see this heat around the bag. And 
I really was like, I can't keep up with the apparel and the excitement around the bag. So what, you know, what am I going to do? So, um, at the time I was styling to pay the bills, uh, that wasn't enough. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll style and make some good tips on the side. Become that a waitress. Become a waitress. Say, like a Chinese restaurant or Italian restaurant. Well, that's my brother always <laughs> embellishing the story, which is really annoying for me that that's not actually the type of thing I was considering, okay. but I thought like a bartender or a waitress where you can make a lot of money very quickly was something that I was considering. Um, I, I had uh, gone to my father at first and said, Hey, can I borrow some money to make you know this happen? And he said, no. And that's when I called my brother actually. And what was his first instinct? His first instinct was, do you have an LLC? Do you have a tax ID? Are your accounts separate? Are you just living from one account? Um, so it was very much those very simple questions. I did not have an LLC. I didn't have a tax ID and I was living from one account. So he first went about like very slowly, almost like, um, you know, how to start a company for dummies step by step going through the, the basics that we needed. And then it was very much like, how much is your first order? Okay. How much does it cost to fund that first order? Okay. Here's a check for just that. Nothing else. Mm-hmm. So we lived like that very, very cautiously and very slowly. There was no, here's an infusion of capital and go, you know, you can eat more than ramen now. It was not about that at all. Think about the security Fortune 500 companies use. They need to know police are going to be on the scene immediately. This is exactly the kind of security you get with Simply Safe. If there's a break-in, they use real video evidence to give police an eyewitness account of the crime. And that means police dispatch up to 350% faster than for a normal burglar alarm. With Simply Safe, you get comprehensive protection for your home. Outdoor cameras and doorbells alert you to anyone approaching your house. Entry motion and glass break sensors guard inside. Plus, Simply Safe protects your home from fires, water damage, carbon monoxide poisoning, and it's all monitored 24-7 by live security professionals. You can set it up yourself with no tools needed, or they can do it for you, and it's only 50 cents a day with no contracts. Visit simplysafe.com slash so money. You'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. Be sure you go to simplysafe.com slash so money so they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash so money. That interview, by the way, was Rebecca's first podcast ever. And just a little fun fact, if you're in New York City on January 18th, she and I will be hosting a free fun event at her store in Soho. That's January 18th at 6 p.m. You'll get to hang out with the two of us. We're going to share our best advice on money, career, and starting a business. There'll also be some champagne and some discounted shopping if we're not enough. I mean, I would like to think that we're enough to get you into the store, but hey, champagne and uh, discounted shopping always is icing on the cake. Our next excerpt is from someone dubbed the Jim Carrey of entrepreneurship. He's got multiple personalities, I guess. Uh, I chose this conversation because he touches on the issue of time management. How do you find the time, realistically, to run, like he does, multiple businesses? I mean, it's hard enough to fit in everything you need to do to run one shop. Here's what Clay Clark from episode 353 had to say. Do you do actually have one theme running throughout all of the businesses that you start. Can you share that with us? 
Absolutely. What I, what I do is, um, uh, one of my businesses I'm involved in, it's a fitness business. So I, I guess on paper, I'm the COO of that business. It's called bootcamp Tulsa and it's a women's fitness program. Well, then I also, am, uh, work with an orthodontist where I'm, my job is to market his company, you know, and I'm, I'm not an orthodontist and I'm not a fitness expert and I'm not like a photographer, let's say. So each business, I find somebody who has a lot of skill in one area, whether it be photography or, uh, PR or, or whether it be orthodontist. Or, or, or fitness. And then what I do is I build the business systems. So I, I do the whole thing that Michael Gerber talks about, you know, work on the business, not in it. Uh, I would argue I do work a lot in it, but I help build the systems that, that allow that skill to be scaled out over and over and over. Your new book, is it your newest? Thrive? Yes. Yeah, so take control of your destiny and move beyond surviving now. How did you take control of your destiny? Uh, well, I grew up uh, where I wasn't um, homeless. And I know a lot of people listening to this, we all grew up at different uh, income levels. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who grew up maybe more uh, financially challenged than I, I, I was. But, you know, we grew up on food stamps sometimes. We, we struggled from time to time. And um, I just realized that uh, the world didn't uh, wake up every day with a burning desire to, to pay me. And, but I realized that, that the people who out, out there who are very successful were, were doing things very different than I was doing them. And so I didn't know a lot about everything, but I, I was, I think I was smart enough to ask, start asking the question, what are successful people doing that I'm not doing? And I began reaching out to mentors who, who pushed me and steered me towards books like Think and Grow Rich and the timeless classics like Rich Dad, Poor Dad or Dave Ramsey, these kind of things. And one by one, I started acting upon those, those principles and those practices and the mentorship and began to kind of make it my own. And uh, now I, I just, my daily schedule is very, very different than most people. Tell me about your schedule. I'm curious now. That was quite okay. a tease. Okay. Well, I, I have uh, uh, three rules I kind of live by. Okay. So uh, one of them is, is, is proximity. Um, so as an example, um, you know, if you're, you're a lady who's had a lot of success, you're, you're sharp, you're, you're driven. And I think that there's probably things, you know, uh, everyone could learn uh, from you. And then there's a guy who uh, maybe in, in our life, we can all picture that guy or girl who's just negative. You know, everything's bad and the, the world's falling apart and, and they're upset about the, the newest relationship or their newest job or the newest. They're just, they're just upset. They see the world as half empty. Well, if you only have, you know, 24 hours a day and you choose to spend one of those hours every day with someone like yourself who is upwardly mobile and you're trying to be the best you that you can be, or you spend an hour with somebody who's trying to uh, convince you that the world is bad and getting worse. Um, at the end of the day, that hour could be used very productively or very uh, uh, negatively. And so what I do is I make sure I focus on spending time with, with people in that proximity. That's, that's kind of rule number one. Rule number, two, number two is I ordain my destiny. So every day I make a to-do list and I spend about two to three hours a day minimum um, in a thing called meta time where I'm not working in my current, I'm not thinking about my current reality. I'm, I'm thinking about where I want to be. I'm thinking above the word meta Greek meaning above or beyond. I'm contrasting where I want where I am right now versus where I want to be. And I methodically plan out my day. And then the third thing I, I do that as I'm, I'm a voracious uh, consumer, a, an absolute maniacal, uh, obsessive, uh, compulsive about learning. And I, I block off time every single day to learn because no matter what research you read, whether it's uh, Carol Dweck and, and the whole growth mindset and her Stanford studies, or it's Dave Ramsey and his habits of the rich studies with Tom Corley, or it's the Princeton studies, whatever study you want to read, um, successful people, at least three quarters of them are taking 15 to 30 minutes a day to study um, their career and how to become the best them that they can be, or how to get into that top 5% of their industry. And that's my big three I do. 
every single day. And finally, I want to revisit my conversation with fitness guru and entrepreneur, Jillian Michaels. My question to her, how do you maintain control over the integrity and quality of your business, especially when it's built around you, a person, the face and name of the business? Jillian at one point talked about why she would turn down million-dollar deals because well, they just didn't align with her values. Now that's impressive, right? Others would take those deals. She wouldn't. Here is Jillian Michaels on keeping a grip on her brand. I've been reading in a lot of business publications because your business is actually quite remarkable in that you're bucking a lot of the the trends insofar as where a lot of businesses these days will go to social media to try to build their audience and to engage brands like yourself, which have <clears throat> such equity in like your name and your reputation. Very easy for you to say, align yourself with another brand in a licensing deal, but you're very careful about maintaining control. Could you talk about that a little bit? I think our audience would really appreciate some business strategy coming from you and specifically around the control that you and, and your business partner are very careful about having. Well, you know, unfortunately, I've come to learn that you can't control everything, um, which is which is a real bummer. I'm sure this harkens back to my childhood. <laughs> um, but I, I think the key is that you do need to control as much as you can. And I don't mean micromanaging. I mean setting the course of the ship, right? You know, plotting the coordinates, getting all your people on board, explaining to everybody where we're going, and then not micromanaging them, but checking in on them intermittently to make sure that everybody's still on the same page. And with the messaging, you, you've got to be true to form because to have a brand that lasts I write everything. Like literally I write every workout, I write every meal plan, I write every recipe. And I, I might work with partners, um, you know, a chef or a registered dietitian, or I just wrote a book on pregnancy and, and uh, mastering your maternity. And I worked with you know, an endocrinologist, an OBGYN, an internist, a pregnancy fitness specialist, but I'm involved with everything because I never want someone to go, wait a second. She just said, don't eat that. And then over here, it's in her meal plan. Or she told me to work out like this. And then over there, she's it's, she's doing something totally different. I, I can't trust her. And I also feel that if you want to get people results, which is a huge part of being successful as a brand, because a brand makes you a sexy promise. Hey, you know, if you if you can adhere to these guidelines and you can um, pick up this lifestyle, pick up what I'm laying down, you're going to get these results. To deliver on those results, you need consistency. And to have consistency, you have to control the message. So in my opinion, to be successful as a brand, especially a lifestyle brand, you have to be consistent with your message and make sure that it delivers on its promises. God, you know, the one thing that I was always very good at was knowing, you know, I could never do a deal. I had a a friend who did like an $8 million deal with PepsiCo for, you know, oatmeal and various products. And I, I could never do that deal. Um, you know, because I've written <laughs> multiple books and, uh, done various appearances and tours and speaking engagements saying, Hey, don't eat these ingredients. Um, and many of those ingredients being in PepsiCo products. So that's not an option for me. And I always felt that, you know, and I think it's harder for a woman than it is for a man. You know, people really hold your feet to the fire. Men get away with murder. Um, you know, women are, are heavily scrutinized. And I just would never feel good 
saying to someone, oh, no, don't worry. You can have this product and then pocket $5 million. Good for Jillian Michaels. And hope these were inspiring to listen to as we head into the new year. I know for many of us, 2017 is going to be the year finally that we start that business. Thank you for tuning in, guys. I'll see you back here on Friday for our regularly scheduled programming and all new Ask Farnoosh. Hope your day is so money.